0: Welcome to the Kingdom Way Podcast. My name is Justin Gravat, and I hope that this will be a place where we can have meaningful conversations about the Christian faith to better help us follow Jesus, the living and reigning King. My goal is that through these theological discussions, we can better learn about the way of Jesus, which will profoundly influence how we live each and every day. The gospel of the Kingdom of God, the good news Jesus preached, offers a new way of living, and that requires that we take seriously what Jesus taught and how he lived. But this work is absolutely worth it, as following and practicing this kingdom way of Jesus leads to an abundant and flourishing life as we connect learning with living. Have followers of Jesus lost the value, the influence, the importance of beauty? My guest today says, quote, Evangelicals have failed to employ the word beauty in our daily vocabulary, and that means we have failed to incorporate beauty variously into our everyday conversations, how we treat others, the way we navigate daily life, and our own lives in Christ. It might mean we ourselves are not purposefully beautiful. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Kingdom Way podcast. Helping me unpack some of these ideas is my guest, Dr. Ed Robarchek. He holds a PhD in the history of theology and and has four published books, one of which earned a Book of the Year award. After teaching theology full-time at a Christian university for 15 years, he's eager to share his expertise and out-of-the-box thinking with everyone. He is also the voice behind The Uncensored Unprofessor, a great podcast which addresses theology, cultural matters, and much, much more. Dr. Abarczyk, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Well, thanks, Justin. It's a privilege. And I I love that you're doing a theology podcast and provoking people to think more carefully about their faith. So it's a a delight to be with you today.
0: I have great memories with you. Um, I had several classes with you during my undergraduate years in college. I remember you talking about what you call POMO, which is a shorthand way to talk about postmodernism, which I've carried with me all these Mm -hmm. years. And I believe you would even give people yellow cards, like in soccer, and maybe even a red card sometimes. I'm not sure. Am I remembering that correctly?
1: (laughs) There were different little classroom rules. Yeah, you couldn't sneeze. (laughs) You could sneeze, but no one was allowed to say bless you because I had already pre-blessed the whole class. You couldn't ask a question that someone just Mm. asked because that meant you weren't paying attention. (laughs) Mostly the the yellow card and the red card were a way to do something crazy and zany to keep the class engaged and uh, I don't think I think maybe one student was offended when they got yellow (laughs) carded over all the years but most everybody else loved it.
0: Yeah that was that was great the the question repeat question issue especially I think other students appreciated (laughs) that because it always was sort of awkward when you would ask a question and then three minutes later someone else would ask the exact same question and you just addressed it straight up. So I appreciate that.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was fun.
0: No, you were a very, very popular professor back in the day. And now you call yourself, I believe the Pope of podcasting. The so Pope is... of podcasting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, in class at Halloween, several years, I would dress up like the Pope. And again, there were only a few students who were offended. It was mostly Halloween fun, but you would talk. I would talk about how in the classroom I have authority, and people believe things that I say even when I don't have warrant, because there's something about the office of professor, you have authority. So I thought it'd be fun to carry that over into the podcast and say, by the authority invested in me by me, I'm now the Pope of, of podcasting. But yeah, it's, it's all just a way to be goofy and to, and to make things more entertaining.
0: No, we all we all appreciated it. Yeah, it is I know there have been some studies that if someone wears a suit and tie or looks like a doctor, people just seem to accept their what they say and what they do without question, um, which is kind of scary when you think about it.
1: Well, it was weird for me when I first started teaching to realize these people are listening to what I'm saying. And then <laughs> and then the re- deeper realization, oh my goodness, they 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 trust me and they believe me so Over time, you really realize that that's a sacred trust, Hmm. that that office carries gravitas or weight to it that shouldn't be abused. And don't get me going on how much it is abused today. But So uh, I wanted to make it playful and engage the students more than try to stand up there and pretend that I was some Einstein or something. (laughs) Sure, sure.
0: So talk a little bit about your podcast. The title is The Uncensored Unprofessor. And I I, I love that title, but why uncensored and why unprofessor? What's the story behind that?
1: So I had two two former students who were pushing me to do the podcast, and my daughter-in-law was also prodding me to do the podcast. And when we began thinking through different names, I, I just put out on Facebook to my fr- friends, which is mostly former students, hey, what would be a good name for my podcast? And a student, interestingly enough, she lives in Colorado, I forget which town, she s- suggested uncensored, unprofessor, because the uncensored sounds a little catchy or edgy or um, like maybe you should, shouldn't be saying some of the things that you say, which was... Not infrequent in my classroom that I would say things you shouldn't say. And unprofessor because I'm weirdly not a professor anymore. So when I resign my position, it's like, okay, what am I going to do and be? And kind of my whole life as a charismatic Pentecostal, I've lived with what does the Spirit put before me? And so I really felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, this is what I have for you now. This is what is in this next season. And so both the uncensored and unprofessor allowed me to kind of position myself. This is a it's a show for people who want to think about their faith, but I'm not gonna say all of the standard buzzwords. I'm not gonna say all this, the standard bumper stickers. In fact, bumper sticker thinking kind of drives me crazy because it, it gets people stuck and it leaves them in bad patterns. And so anyway, it, it all just kind of came together in the way that things can when we're fall when we following the Lord. Absolutely.
0: No, it's, it's a good podcast. I recommend people check it out. But Thanks. Yeah, no, of course. And today we're going to be talking about one of the books you've written called For Him Who Has Eyes to See, Beauty in the History of Theology which I I found to be a really unique theological book in that it focuses on the issue of beauty, which is not an attribute that gets a lot of attention, at least in contemporary theology that I've read. You know, I think of ideas like truth or goodness and ethics. Really, those seem to be very popular issues to talk about or write about. But you say the premise of your book is that evangelicals have failed to employ the word beauty in our daily vocabulary. And that evangelicals seemingly have a theological bias against beauty. So what makes you say this? What's the problem you're seeing with evangelicals?
1: Yeah. So let me just, let me just back it up a little bit. The reason that I got interested in beauty, primarily in terms of Christian faith, was I attended a Russian Orthodox liturgy. My mom lived in Seattle, the Seattle area at the time. And I, on a, invitation from her. I went to this Russian Orthodox liturgy and was overwhelmed by this this cathedral full of icons. And it hit me strangely, and yet it, it attracted me. And I was kind of caught up in the mystery of that. And as a Pentecostal, that was a very weird thing for me. But I left, not only did that church visit lead into my dissertation, but I left thinking, oh my goodness, they are intentionally using beauty and aesthetic and form to shape people's experience of Christ at church. And so it's been a twofold thing for me, Justin. One is that I just think beauty is one of the most amazing things in life, particularly amazing because we so ignore it. We can go back to that. And then the other part of that grip that happened to me was along missional lines. So the whole world is interested in image. The whole world is interested in aesthetic, whether we talk about jewelry or how we design and, and decorate our homes or our apparel or the cool sweep of line on our car. The whole world is interested in, in design and aesthetic and image. And here we have the evangelical church making zero use of that zero and so to me i've i've felt for a couple decades like it's a missed missional opportunity that okay so we have powerpoints up there but even the powerpoints behind the lyrics of our worship songs are not designed to attract or shape or enhance the experience they're there sort of like mood music in the background they're there to um make it so that we don't just have black letters on a white screen. So there's some sort of sense of, well, we got to have more than just letters. But there's no real theological, spiritual, missional intention or strategy that's behind that little use of aesthetic. And then, as I said in the introduction of that book, our, most evangelical churches are just sort of like empty caves, and rather than just crit- go hard on the critique of that, which I could, my the gist of it for me is this is a missed opportunity. And I remember when I was in kindergarten, first grade, and second grade, and third grade, I loved being in my classroom. Part of the reason I loved that, those teachers were intentional and strategic to put aesthetic and color And interesting images all around the classroom, whether it was just to enhance the learning of the alphabet or the numbers or learning animal names or whatever, it made the experience more engaging. And then, I guess, as we become adults or I guess as we become evangelical adults, we give all that up and then we strip our churches bare. So we're reduced and it's a very reductionistic worship experience. And I just started thinking, you know, there's got to be some missional way to promote the use of beauty. Not that beauty needs to be only used in a utilitarian fashion. I mean, beauty's worth its own attention, its own presence. But mostly, I was thinking missionally how can I try to push the church to rethink what it means to gather together and to shape disciples? And I don't think that's the part of most evangelical worship services. I think, for unfortunately, it's entertainment or it's psychology. But I'm saying, no, let's use this space where we're together all the time to actually shape disciples and shape who we are in Christ.
0: Do you think some evangelicals maybe don't want to use employ beauty, as you say, because they're afraid that it's going to be an image of God and we're called not to... Create these graven images, or yeah, I I don't want to say everyone's just being lazy with not using beauty because I'm sure there's a plethora of reasons why. But do you think it's theological? Maybe it's more practical. Why do you think there's this aversion to employing beauty from evangelicals?
1: Well, there's yeah, that's an excellent question, and there's a couple of historical reasons. The first one's the Reformation so in my beauty book i have a chapter on the reformation and i so show how luther calvin and zwingli each took a, a sort of a different stance from the other on beauty luther was for the use of images and beauty calvin had mixed feelings and zwingli was entirely against it most evangelicals with zero idea are against image or or the use of beauty Yes, because they think it will be idolatrous, which again is sort of understandable in light of scripture, but it's also sort of not understandable given that when the Lord, <laughs> when God gave instructions to Moses on how to design the tabernacle, the thing was was entirely stunningly beautiful. When God gave the temple for David and then Solomon to build, the thing was stunningly overwhelmingly beautiful so god is not afraid of beauty and god's not afraid of having beauty be something that brings us to him or god's not afraid that we might use beauty to glorify him but the the, the protestant sentiment the protestant imagination it's really kind of fascinating that 500 years later we're still stuck in an anti-catholic mode of thinking and we don't even really realize what's going on, um, that there's just this anti-Catholic. Well, if the Catholics did it, then we can't do it. But I'm less convinced of that argument. But I think the equally powerful segment that's fed into this, Justin, is that in our society is so secular. And we've learned through secularism and a secular worldview or a secular processing lenses that we wear to cut beauty out of reality. So we've accepted what Immanuel Kant said, or what scholars took away from Immanuel Kant, who said that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so we reduce beauty to some subjective experience or a subjective opinion, when in fact, that's not true, but that's what that's the lenses we've been handed. If if the Protestant Reformation's had a 500 year effect on us, secularism's had a 200 year effect on us. But secularism has had the advantage of the entire educational system, and politicians, and government spending, and popular pop culture that presses down upon us until beauty's just just completely obliterated from the way that we think, and so it's it it's just. It's entirely stripped away. I mean, thinking, I was aware thinking about your in my conversation today, and I thought, you know, except for my mom and my wife and two of my friends who I graduated from college with, we've remained friends for forty years, and apart from those four people, no one in my life talks about beauty, hmm. and that's that's really stunningly remarkable, given how constantly we are saturated with beauty. We're also constantly saturated with ugliness. That's another discussion, but beauty surrounds us every single day. And we so completely teach ourselves not to pay attention to it. And so all of that pours down into the way that the evangelical church processes its, it's aesthetic or it's its not even just about what we see with our eyes, even though I made that the title of my book. It's just the whole way of bearing that we do life. Beauty's all around us, but because we so exclude it, because we so deny it, then we're no longer even able to talk about it. And if we can't talk about it, there's no way to bring it into our perceptive field.
0: One thing that just popped to mind as you were speaking is I've been encouraged more recently with some of the what's called imaginative apologetics, this, this focus on, you know, you think of the good, the true and the beautiful, and how a lot of theology and a lot of apologetics seems to focus on the good and the true. And of course, those are wonderful things to focus on, but the beautiful aspect of the gospel of Jesus, of God, of the biblical narrative, I think like you're alluding to a lot is lost there and that we're not capturing that because We're so saturated with beauty. And I think a lot of non-Christians could be really captivated by the beauty of the Christian story if we employed that more. I'd like to go back a little bit here with definitions because we've been talking Mm -hmm. a lot about beauty. We've already been mentioning it several times here. and I imagine that when people hear the word beauty, certain ideas or even certain examples come to mind. And you even made a distinction there between someone or something being pretty and something or someone being beautiful. So how would you define beauty? And I know it may not be, you know, a cut and dry definition, Mm -hmm. but when we're talking about beauty, what are some ways we can define it so that people have a better idea of what we're discussing here?
1: Yeah, that's really important. Anytime we talk about the transcendence, truth, goodness, beauty, holiness, Anytime we talk about the transcendence, they're really hard to define. We need lots of words, analogies, uh, descriptors. But for years, I wouldn't define beauty in a class I taught on beauty. But I've come to define beauty as an effulgence or an overflowing, or the fancy word that Thomas Aquinas used was Latin excessus. There's a something more there. There's there's, there is more than meets the eye, but it's overflowing, and it's generous, and it spills out, which, which again makes beauty hard to define because there's more going on. When I think of my wife, there's, a, there's more than meets the eye. There's a depth, there's a resonance, there's a bearing, there's a gift, there's a presence that's more than the assembly of the parts beauty excesses excess there's an unnecessary excess so when god created he could have just made the whole world shades of gray and we wouldn't have known the difference instead he made the world with thousands and thousands and thousands of colors this will be a silly example but i play golf and i have a ball marker and the the face of that ball marker is iridescent. And when I set it down, if I walk around the green or look at that ball marker from different angles, I see colors radiating off of that little ball marker. It's the size of a dime and it's irradiating colors that I haven't seen almost in my entire life. So there's an excess. There's more going on on that little ball marker than you could ever possibly imagine if you just see it from the right angle. And we in the church won't talk about the angles we need to see that. So we don't talk about who we are in God or who God is as Creator or who Jesus Christ is as as the Redeemer. We we never mix beauty into any of the those discussions. So we fail to. To see and apprehend and enjoy and relish and soak in the beauty of what God has done. Um, it's, it's a huge omission.
0: You mentioned beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I hear that quite a bit. Even among many Christians, I've heard that. And I understand when we talk about beauty, it can be nuanced in different ways. And, and you gave a helpful definition there you know, I think of people talking about inner beauty versus outer beauty. I even hear, you know, mathematicians talk about their formulas, their very complicated formulas being beautiful.
1: Right. It sounds like
0: you're saying then there is something objectively true when we speak about beauty. It's not just in the eye of the beholder. Talk about, do you think beauty is objective or is it more just subjective?
1: Yeah. Well, let me just, again, make a preferatory remark beauty is not a standalone so it's like if we said car we can sort of nail down categories to define car beauty's that's why beauty's hard to define because it comes in so many forms beauty beauty never appears apart from goodness beauty probably rarely appears apart from holiness but then it just begs the question of what's goodness or holy right so when i earlier said beauty's not necessarily pretty i've i've see pretty women to put it on that side of the ledger all the time in the media who when i look at them i almost can have a visceral response of what an ugly soul or i can see really stunningly handsome men who when i look at them i can have a visceral reaction like Oh my goodness, that is an ugly soul. So, it's not uh, one one painter and professor I learned from. He called it mere appearance. Beauty's not the mere appearance. Beauty really is, as you said, something that goes deeper. It it it, it transcends the category, but it appears through the category, or it transcends the item, but it but it couldn't appear except through the item. So. Those are those are important distinctions. I do believe beauty is objective, which even though I've believed that for 15 years, it even sounds weird to say, and it sounds weird to say it because of the context we live in, which is that beauty is just an opinion, or beauty is just your subjective experience. But I believe beauty is objectively real, and my theologic goes like this. God is real god is beautiful therefore beauty objectively exists or the way that hans urs von Balthasar put it and i have a long chapter of him on my book because he's probably been more influential in my thinking about beauty than any theologian catholic swiss catholic uh mid to late 20th century theologian von Balthasar said christ is the perfect form so he wrote a five, he wrote a five-volume systematic theology using beauty as his grid, and he he used Christ as the as the perfect man. Here's a man who was 100% attuned to the Father and the Spirit, and he showed us how to live and be and walk, and be and orient his whole life. He was the perfect embodiment of what god has for the human form the human person so christ is the objective incarnate incarnation appearance of beauty itself that wasn't metaphorically real that wasn't allegorically real that wasn't quotes spiritually real that was earthly human embodiedly real objectively real beauty is real and what happens is that again frequently we aren't we don't know how to recognize beauty i used to lead a justin i used to, for years i would lead these tours of the getty museum down in westwood there, above ucla there and i had a friend who would go with me who was an artist So I would talk theology, and he would talk art. And at the end of every five-hour tour of the Getty Museum, we would go into the Impressionist room, this Impressionist gallery. And at one point, he and I stopped and figured, there's got to be worth a billion dollars worth of paintings in this one room. I didn't like Impressionist art. I would go in there and go, yeah, I know this is famous. And I know that these are all great names and all of these paintings show up in the art books of of every high school college art book ever produced. All these paintings are in there. But to me it was just like, "meh." And my friend Dave, he said he goes, "I don't think you're looking at this right. You don't understand what they're doing. You're looking for realism and that's not what they were doing. They were trying to capture the way that light bounces off and plays with form and when he told me that I went oh my goodness I okay now oh now I get it that's why that harbor scene has so many blues and greens and grays and purples all exploding off of that canvas he's not trying to do realism he's trying to show me what the art looked like with that what that scene looked like at at in the morning when the sun was first coming up on a partially foggy day. (gasps) Oh, that's so cool. I needed someone to tell me how to look at what was objectively beautiful. Even though it was right in front of me, probably for eight trips in that gallery, I always went in and went, meh. When I was taught how to see that, the beauty began to explode off those canvases for me. I think that's the same of our experience of beauty in, in everyday life. We have so muted. We've so diminished. We've so blocked out. It's like we've graffiti sp- spray painted over beauty. We not only don't know how to talk about it, we can't even see that it's there, but it's objectively true.
0: Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying my talk with Ed Barczyk about the nature, purpose, and role of beauty for followers of Jesus. I want to share a thought experiment with you by asking a question, and that is, would you still be a Christian, one who follows the way of Jesus, even if there was no afterlife? Of course, I absolutely believe that the faithful will live forever under King Jesus and the restored creation, but I invite you to consider my question regardless. Assume God exists, Jesus came to earth and showed what a flourishing human life looked like as he was indwelt with the Holy Spirit in union with God and that Jesus called us to imitate him in all of this. But in this thought experiment, assume life ended at death for us and there was no afterlife. Would you still find value in the Christian way? I'm not saying there is necessarily a right or wrong answer to this question as it's just a thought experiment but it may help illustrate some of our primary motivations for being Christians. Are we motivated primarily, even exclusively, for our own security, for our own destiny, about avoiding hell, for example? Or do we see genuine value, purpose, and meaning in the practices, beliefs, and lifestyle of Jesus for this life in the here and now? Practices like sacrificial love for others, even our enemies, Beliefs which include seeing all humans having intrinsic value as image bearers of God, and a lifestyle which prioritizes humility and growing in virtue. These two motivations are not mutually exclusive. We can both care about our eternal destiny and that our life has meaning now. But how we answer the question may demonstrate how we see the utility and purpose of Christianity. Is being filled with the Spirit? in union with Christ, adopted into God's family, are all these things worth following Jesus in this life, regardless of what happens after we die? Let me know what you think. Would you still be a Christian, one who follows the way of Jesus, even if there was no afterlife? Part of what you're saying reminds me when I first listen to a new song or album, or I see a piece of art, and I appreciate the art, but sometimes it does take an expert artist or someone who really understands music composition to help me have eyes to see and to really unpack the yeah. beauty, the nuance, the complexity in the piece of art or the song. And then it, it just comes alive to me and it really does pop. And it's almost like I'm listening to a new song or looking at a new piece of art. And it sounds like that's part of what you're saying is we sometimes need that guide or mentor to help us see what's in front of us and see the objective beauty.
1: Yeah. No, that's great. It's a good analogy. And another one that comes to my mind is are all the foodies, right? All these uh TV shows up with foodies and cooking and cooking competitions and f- famous chefs who cook or they are the judges of the of whatever dish. And to me it's none of it interesting. I'm I don't understand it it's not interesting to me but when someone sits down at the table and begins mm. to tell me now pay attention can you can you discern that nutmeg do you see how that nutmeg is playing off of that that other flavor and you go oh my goodness that's cool that's cool what they did there and so yeah even in the foodie realm they are They are bringing beauty to bear through flavor and aroma and our whole olfactory system. And it's absolutely right. It is epistemic. We don't know how to see it. I titled my book, For Him Who Has Eyes to See. Jesus said that once. He more commonly said, at least in the synoptic gospels, for him who has ears to hear. And he was, Justin, to your point, crying out to them, you guys, there's something more here. There's more going on than meets your ear. You think I'm just one more wandering preacher like we've had rolling through here all our lives. There's something more going on here. Unless you turn your ears on, you're going to miss it. And I think the same holds true with beauty. We we need to teach and talk to one another, to stir up one another. Uh, Not only is it, a way to engage people for Christ, but it just makes life so much more meaningful. It makes life so much more purposeful and hopeful to recognize the beauty that's around us. I think beauty truly staves off despair. But if we're not aware of that, then, you know, all I'm doing is staring at my computer screen and tracking the daily news, and it's easy to fall into despair when you do that. When in fact, if you just step outside for a few minutes and if you learn to look the right way, you might see beauty exploding. As
0: I was reading through your work, I did think a lot of the temple and the tabernacle as described in the Old Testament, and you mentioned that earlier in our conversation here, and just the meticulous detail that goes into all the colors and the jewels and the cloth, and you do get the impression that God does value beauty and wants people to be invited into spaces yeah. that are beautiful. And that does make me think of our local churches. My wife and I, we visited Roman Catholic churches, Greek Orthodox churches, Anglican churches, and there is something really powerful when you step into those locations and are just struck by the the beauty. And I think it helps foster a sense of reverence and holiness and sacredness and a lot of our Protestant churches, not all of them, but a lot, don't seem to really capture that. So I wonder, in what ways can we start to move in the right direction with our local churches so that we start to capture some of that beauty, so that people are invited into a space of reverence?
1: No, it's 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 the it is the question. And again, I wouldn't want to, as a Christ follower, only talk about beauty in terms of the church gathering, but it certainly would start there. And you're right. Um, if you go into a... I've visited... I make it a point to visit churches. And I want to know what the different ways of being and worshiping Christ are out there. I like I like having my toe in the water knowing what's going on there. It is amazing to me, Justin, how many churches will not even have a cross mm-hmm. in their sanctuary. Now, when I was a kid... Even low church Baptist and Pentecostal churches still had simple emblems, crosses and altars and communion tables and things like altar rails. We still had those. Today, if you go in there, sort of like empty caves. Or if they have a cross, it's off to the side. Or if they have a cross, it's in the back. But it's amazing to me. Not that it only needs to be a cross. But it's amazing to me how stark and empty it is. So probably needs to start with the pastors right pastor you you and i I would teach this way a certain demographic of your congregation is already attuned this way you aren't you're rational you're literate you're word oriented but there's a certain demo in your congregation who is they're they are visual they are artists or they are they are attuned differently to life. They're usually more compassionate. They're usually more uh, live in their feelings than than the rest of us. But there are people there who will be totally lit up if you have some emblem, some instantiation, some object of beauty there. And if you don't want it to be of Jesus, um, it, it could still be uh, all kinds of ancient Christian representational art of shepherds and arcs and rainbows. There were all kinds of things the ancient Christians were using in the first couple of centuries that are straight out of Scripture that could be touch points for people to, to be present in their worship of God. Um, but it probably has to start with pastors. But let me tell you what, this is a big ask because, again, with my friend Dave, we tried... We tried for probably seven years to. We started an organization. We called it Escaton Creative, and we approached pastors and artists about doing missional art for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of building disciples. And it was like um, it was like trying to to scratch granite with your fingernail to make a difference. Because the, the church's imagination, to your point, that epistemic sensibility, that orientation to life is so like granite formed that to get the, the local it's going to take some out-of-the-box pas, pastors. And we believed, my buddy and I believe, that there is a billion-dollar industry that's coming. There are, if you only want to think about it as a crass capitalist, there are billions and billions and billions of dollars that are going to be made when low church Protestant churches, it's probably going to have to start somewhere as, well, it's going to have to start somewhere like Hillsong or some mega church that all the other churches follow. When they do it, Then all the other churches are going to go, oh, this is the coolest thing. We can engage people this way. That's so cool. And then it's going to explode. But I don't know. I I tried to write a book on it. I wrote a journal article. I taught a class on it. I don't know how you crack that granite. If you can figure that out, you'll you'll be a full man. You'll be a rich man.
0: Recently, I'm not sure if you've heard, but the Denver Nuggets are – Basketball team here in Colorado. They
1: Congratulations, yeah. Colorado.
0: <laughs> yeah, they, they won the NBA championship. And I watched the game and I noticed there's the national anthem that's sung and then the Pledge of Allegiance, putting your hand over your heart, the United States of America flag. And I think a lot of these things form habits that encourage this corporate camaraderie with citizens of America. And I wonder if... Protestant churches were to employ more visual aids in their services, if that would help encourage a sense of being a corporate body, a body of Christ, instead of just being individuals coming to the same church. But I think if you, if you say the creeds, if you have emblems to look at, it just helps form more of a a sense that you're a family, you're brothers and sisters in Christ.
1: No, I agree. And because you're right, there are sociological reasons for doing this. Communities are, Communities don't hang together over nothing. The communities are orient are oriented around something. And across human history, frequently they were oriented around images. and that makes pastors nervous because an image can become an idol, right? But anything in life can become an idol. The altar can become an idol. This is a weird thing to say. Our Bible can become an idol. Uh, there are many pastors around the globe for with whom their congregations, they function as idols. So the fact that that happens and human nature is wired that way doesn't mean that we throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, well, we're going to get rid of all beauty. We could say we're going to get rid of all truth for the same reason. And in fact, aren't we watching big chunks of the church say, well, since truth is offensive, we're going to get rid of that too. And That's never the answer is to to get rid of the transcendent better to make use of it and teach it and promote it and orient people properly to that or in my thinking through that to christ because i'm not just talking about spending lots of money and making your sanctuary look cool um justin maybe it's as simple as pastors going to artists in their congregation and saying hey let's sit down and brainstorm together what could we do that wouldn't just be mood lighting What could we do that wouldn't just make the service more cool, but what could we do in an artistic sense that would add to the gathering, that would help to promote becoming a disciple? Again, I'm not Eastern Orthodox, but they have those icons. What those clever dudes knew 1,500, 1,600 years ago is people's minds wander. Let's give them... Somewhere for when their mind wanders to land. Let's give them an image of holiness. Let's give them an image of Christian virtue. Let's give them an image of Christian faithfulness. So that when their wandering empty mind lands, they're still brought back to Christ. And I, I, to me that just makes, that's exactly what my kindergarten teacher was doing. She knew that when little Eddie walked in the room, he was going to get bored and he was going to look around and he's going to start daydreaming. Where did Eddie's mind go when that happened? Up to the letter one, over to that picture of the giraffe under the, letter, under the letter G. It was clever. It was genius. And it was a recognition of human nature. But you go into a Protestant church and it's a cave. It's a vacuum. So where does your mind go? Well, Lord knows we wouldn't want to know where a lot of those minds are in the middle of a church service. This, Cause there's nothing there to affix their attention other than that platform and that speaker.
0: Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but that is incredibly practical and just realistic too. That a lot of people have trouble sitting for an hour or however long the oh. service is. Yeah. So to give them something, if they're looking around, to give them something beautiful and detailed and theological as well you can learn about God through a lot yep. of these images and pictures and pieces of art.
1: Yeah. I have started a, well, it well again this was a God thing I won't even go into the to the to the setup and the story but for for about 5 of the last 7 years of my life I've been in an Anglican church. I'm a I'm Pentecostal. I've been in an Anglican church. A huge reason for that is beauty. And the church where I am now, we have a brand new church building it's only it's not quite two years old, but I've never seen this before, and it made a million percent sense to me on either side of the sanctuary uh, up front of the altar. if you look at the left or the right above the altar, on one side there's a Caravaggio painting of Jesus at the dinner on the from the road to Emmaus. On the other side, there's a painting, a Renaissance painting. No, this one's 20th century painting of Jesus healing a a little girl. I think it was the raising of Tabitha. And both of those paintings, their reproductions, obviously, our little Spudlandia, Idaho church couldn't afford a Caravaggio, right? Our our church would be broken into every day of the week. Someone would want to steal that Caravaggio. They're reprints, but when I'm sitting there, and my mind begins to wander, and I look up and I see those images, and it brings me back to some biblical story. But it's a it's a story that comes to me through beauty. They're beautiful paintings. I've never been in a church in my life that, other than in Europe, I've never been in a church in my life that had paintings on either side of the altar. It's and it's so simple. Those couldn't have cost very much compared to putting up a whole bank of mood lights or fog machines. They just couldn't have cost much as reprints to put up there. And it's such a simple pneumatic, that memesis, the the way to focus the mind and the memory is such a simple device. And it adds to the whole design of the sanctuary. It doesn't detract.
0: Switching topics here a little bit. When we think about God, and I think of God's what's often called called his superlative attributes of the highest rank attributes like omniscience omnipotence omnibenevolence and those are just fancy ways of saying god's all knowing all loving all good oftentimes beauty isn't spoken of a lot when we talk about god and you write in your book that beauty is an oversplash of god's glory and love do you think that we in the church in theology at the university We should be talking more about God being beautiful.
1: I had the privilege of leading, co-leading and leading four trips to Italy, four month long study abroad trips to Italy, where we're looking at some of the greatest art in all of human history. And there you are when you go into Rome, or I'm thinking right now of Florence, and you get on a train and you're going down the train track. And there along the walls of that train track, Are literally miles of filthy black graffiti and it so betrays the beauty in the history of Italy it so betrays the beauty of the landscape and that graffiti is meant to be an offense it's meant to violate and shock your sensibilities the coolest thing about beauty is it comes in peace Beauty never says to somebody, um, I'm, I am going to beat the hell out of you unless you get down on your knees. Beauty is always a free offering. This comes from David Bentley Hart, an Eastern Orthodox writer who was ripping off Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers. And the two of them were saying beauty always comes in peace. Beauty is always an offering. I think it's one reason why our society so rejects and dismisses beauty is because it, you can do that and there's no repercussion, we think. It's just easy to ignore and distance and cut beauty off. And beauty's just this free, peaceful offering from God that if you stop and you relish it for a few minutes, you might just discern the presence of the Lord. You might just be reminded of the love of God that comes in. I mean, God can come in violent ways. I don't want to tame God here today, but frequently the love of God comes to us in sort of muted, or C.S. Lewis would say, gentlemanly ways. God's a gentleman. And that offer of beauty, which is so peaceful and so restful, even though beauty can also appear in through strong imagery and violent imagery, but that beauty is such an offering it's an invitation. It's an invitation to love. And I think, I think Justin, it goes to what you're saying about omnipresence. I think it goes to omnibenevolence, that notion that God is so good. But he's not good in a way that says, hey, I'm going to put this gun to your head. Worship me. He comes in a way that says, hey, here's a free, gentle, open door, love, subtle, quiet, peaceful offering of love you can take it if you want you're free to reject it i think beauty goes to the depth of all that i think it speaks of the transcendence of god i think i think there's nothing about god if we normally say god's all always 100% loving and always 100% holy right those are never at odds with one another i would want to mix in well god is always 100% beautiful i think the judgment of god is beautiful I think the wrath of God is beautiful. I I think the truth of God, when he speaks a word into someone's heart that is meant to pierce their heart, that is something of beauty. But again, it's just not part of the, of the way that we incorporate or the way that we think about the attributes of God. When every description I've ever read uh, about heaven or anyone who's had a near-death experience of heaven, they can't help but describe the beauty or try to describe the beauty that they encountered. Well, that's saying something about the reality and the the character of God himself.
0: Yeah, I think it's so important when we think about God. I think there's a tendency to always prioritize or think about one attribute to the exclusion of others. I know I've done that myself for different reasons or theological commitments. You know, we have prioritize God's sovereignty or God is love. God is a consuming fire or God is light. But I think we need to hold these all together and see that, like you're mentioning they're, they complement each other and they reinforce each other and they make sense in light of each other. And I think beauty is one that needs to be added to that mix there. When we think of God, that it's perfectly consistent and reasonable to say, yeah. God is wrathful, merciful, compassionate, loving, also that he's beautiful. And these don't, they're not mutually exclusive right. attributes of God.
1: Yeah, well, the history of the history of the church is full of mystics and other even common folks who have visions or apparitions or prayer or other of the beatific vision. And that is saying they are they are beholding the beauty of the Lord. I mean, that's as old as Ezekiel, right? That's as old as Moses at the burning bush, something seized the attention of his eyes he couldn't look away there there was something transfixing going on there that again that that's saying it's shouting to us in silence about the beauty of god himself and and i and that makes me approach god differently he right we all like you said we all have these images of god he's this stern father he's this shepherd he's this he's this lord of history yeah but he's also a god who's the essence of his being is beauty. And that's going to make me approach him differently. And if if we take that up and incorporate that correctly, that might make me want to live my life in a beautiful way.
0: Final question for you here, Dr. barchek um, Here on the Kingdom Way podcast, we try to connect correct thinking with correct living as we follow Jesus. So what practical steps can we take to, to have eyes to see the beauty around us
1: yeah my that's a that's such a good question because we we want we want there to be application we want there to be uptake we we want it to to bear fruit i came up with this one years ago my may have just been sitting on the patio and i pray regularly thank you lord for blue on green i can look out over the horizon of trees and various foliage and thank him for the blue sky it's an it can be an everyday discipline where i'm i'm pausing to positively say wow look at i, I did this the other day look at the absolute magnificent symmetry and design of that flower look at just the petal of that flower that's how real god is That's what an amazing designer God is. That's the way that God is active in life. The whole universe is saturated with beauty. I can daily, as part of my spiritual, which I don't like saying it that way, but that's the parlance. As part of my spiritual bearing in life, I can practice beauty every day as a way to practice the presence of God that's not the only way but it's a simple way where in my own self when I'm quiet I'm it's not obtrusive I'm not inserting myself into other people's life if I'm riding along with the car or last night we had the most amazing clouds rolling through there it was you could if you painted them people would go no way thank you lord for the beauty of your creation thank you for the beauty of those clouds Lord come be beautiful in my life help me to live my life in a way that spills out with the beauty of who of who you are. So in our prayer, our devotion, we can do that. But another practical way is to try to find, and this is harder, Justin, but to try to find Christian artists, not necessarily making Christian bumper art, I don't mean that, but people who love Christ, who are serving Christ as artists, who produce beauty. It could be furniture. It might be upholstery work. It might be painting. It might be statuary uh, it might be an icon but support Christian artists and and talk with them and learn from them because I, they're a segment of the of the community especially the Protestant community that are really really kept in a corner and I think if we gave them the chance to, to flourish and get engaged missionally we might be surprised at at the at the gifts, the spiritual gifts they could bring to the table for the benefit of everyone.
0: That's some really good advice there. I think this topic of aesthetics and beauty is really practical, as you noted. It helps foster a sense of gratitude in our prayer life. It makes the Christian case in apologetics and evangelism much more compelling. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Rybarczyk, and for sharing your insight on this topic.
1: Thank you. I'm honored. This was a blast. I appreciate the invite.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Kingdom Way. If you found the conversation helpful in your walk with Jesus, please consider giving the show a review on your listening platform.
1: Thanks, and we'll see you next time.